This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Uh, we're calling an audible on this one. I had all sorts of things lined up for the program today, but uh, as we do in, in talk radio and, and here at news business like, like we we're going right now, uh, when news breaks like this, obviously we, we need to give, bring you the latest on this. And just moments ago, we found out of the passing of uh, Gord Downey at age 53, of course, from the tragically hip. Uh, a, a Canadian icon? Yeah, absolutely. Positively he is. We're going to spend some time talking about that, and uh, we'll get into the rest of the show and uh, some of the details of what's coming up uh, between now and noon a little bit later on. But uh, let's deal with the uh, the here and now and uh, the passing of uh, somebody who in, in many people's minds was part of the Canadian consciousness for many, many years, but uh, for those maybe just passive music fans, uh, over the last couple of years uh, with the diagnosis, of course, of brain cancer and and when other people may have just decided to fade into the into the background when something like that happens and a diagnosis like that happens, uh, Gord Downey got even more active than ever, uh, and it's an incredible story. Eric Alpert is a music publicist, uh, and knows Gord, knows the family, knows the hip, knows what's going on here. He joins us uh, with his reflections on uh, what has become a uh, Canadian legend, really, uh, that of Gord Downey. How are you this morning, Eric? Um, you know, it's one of those situations, I think, that we're all feeling this morning, and I think that it's not just because he's a musician, but I think we've all gone through in our lives where we knew somebody had health issues and, and uh, you know, is not going to get better. Um, and it just kind of seeps in our mind um, that this person may not be around anymore. And uh, that's exactly what I'm feeling. And because I just happen to be working in the music industry and being a music fan, and of course, it's a fan of the Tragically Hip, this one hurts. You know, the last 24 months or so have not been really, really great when it comes to, you know, legendary musicians passing away. But this one is much different because he, he really, he really transcends what we all thought musicians were and, and front men of a, of a, of a rock and roll band. I mean, at the very least, he was that at, at the most. I mean, this was a band and a guy who told our stories really, really well. Um, he held up a mirror to who we were as a culture and as a society, talking about our towns like Bob Cajun and talking about our politicians and our, our history and in the last number of months, talking about our future. Um, you know, when he, when he called out Prime Minister Trudeau a little bit at the last show mm-hmm. in Kingston, um, and said that, you know, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, that the last you know, 150 years of Canada have been really great, but we need to do better. Uh, I mean, he was speaking to all of us. And, and more importantly, he was speaking to, to the kids and the teenagers and the young adults appearing at, at We Day in Toronto and, and We Day in Ottawa, talking about Indigenous rights and Indigenous issues. And for the first time, um, there was a very, very big, commercial band actually trying to make change in the world that we haven't seen in a number of years and for that i'm just thankful that that he took the initiative to do something like that i think we knew there was an inevitability i mean the doctors told us that when the diagnosis was released obviously a couple of years ago eric but but the way that that gord carried on and not just with the tour but even after that uh, recording yet another album, the book, uh, and 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 his work, as you mentioned, with Indigenous people, you kind of got the sense that you know what he's pushing this thing down the field. He's 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 not going to give in to this, and 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 I think we almost forgot about the terminal diagnosis. That's why, as much as we knew that it was inevitability to this, I think it came as a shock to a lot of us today. 
I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, this wasn't just a dabble into into talking about an issue in order to get headlines. This wasn't just a one-off charitable event that he gave his name to in order to help raise awareness and money. This was a this was a lifelong mission for him, and probably, you know, for those that that knew him well. Um, this was an issue that was probably brewing for a long time, even before we even knew about his project with the Secret Path, talking about Cheney Wenjek and 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 being with the Wenjek family. Um, but that just shows that he that he cared. I mean, he cared about what kind of people we have become, what kind of priorities that we have, and the power that he had. Um, he was very well aware of that. And, uh, you know, so, sometimes, I mean, we just get bogged down when it comes to the charitable aspect of, of our own lives. There's people always asking us for money, people always asking us for a credit card, people always asking us to attend this event or that event or, or you know, give our, give our thoughts to this with a tweet. Um, but but Gord, Gord went beyond that. And, and Gord went to rally the country around how this country can do better and and making those wrongs right and making those apologies and making those acceptances when it came to indigenous rights and culture and uh um certainly you know it wasn't something that he had to do he could have just concentrated on his family and his music but the fact that he took the time to do it showed um where his priorities were and and it was all of those things um and uh you know he did it well he did a, he, he he was just a real good guy about it it's uh, interesting that you bring up the, the that last concert in Kingston of course the finale of the uh, the, the tour and uh, and it was a remarkable moment of course and, and you know 11 million Canadians watching that particular show on CBC that I guess it was broadcast live uh, and at the end of it though a lot of us commented he said but you know he looks he looks beat he's tired I mean physically and probably emotionally exhausted and you thought okay there'll be a little downtime the very next morning though eric he was at atawapiskat of course the indian reserve in northern ontario of course it's been the subject of so much controversy i mean he literally got on a plane and went there uh, to talk to the leaders there about what needed to be done there was just no letting up with this guy no because i think when 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 you're a musician that that's what drives um that there is work to be done and the work that needs to be done are, are many, many things. Um, they're making sure that the fans have a really good time, that it's, that it's a celebration rather than a funeral for the band. Um, knowing, knowing that people are coming up to him all the time and looking at him different, looking at him that he's sick. And I think that has to weigh on a lot of people. Um, it's why he didn't want to do any interviews while he was on tour. His health was the most important aspect to that tour and I have no doubt that if he wouldn't or he couldn't do a show for whatever reason then that band would have would have canceled it in a moment um, but he kept going and even after that when he announced the, the the secret path album and book and project and shows they were announcing shows with two weeks ahead of schedule just so that you know they gave everybody time to prepare for those shows with the possibility that he was going to end up canceling them he canceled none of them and that um that just shows his his drive his determination his endurance to do something like this but i think you know when the doctors in the beginning said that you know sometimes people don't don't last 
for longer than a year or 18 months, um, uh, sadly, they were they were pretty much on the mark when it mm-hmm. came to this. Absolutely, they were. I don't want to suggest there were two Gord Downies because, I mean, his his fans, and, uh, and they are in Legion, of course, will say that he was always this way. He was always uh, uh, relevant, and he was always concerned about, about the, the downtrodden and those that weren't getting the breaks, and he wrote about that, of course, a lot with his lyrics. But, uh, but you know, the Order of Canada, of course, uh, which uh, was obviously, I think, motivated to a great extent by uh, the online petition that many people got uh, going uh, after the diagnosis. Uh, I, I I don't want anybody to ever think, Eric, that that was done. Well, isn't that too bad? He's a musician and he's dying, so let's let's honor him before he dies. This had more to do with his body of work, both musically and from a social conscious standpoint. Yeah, you, you know the 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 thing about the Order of Canada is that um, they can speed things up fairly quickly when it comes to being um, nominated and being awarded um, things like this. But it was going to happen anyway. I mean, I, I, there, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever. Yeah, that, I agree. That that Gord was going to be getting this anytime um, soon, um, whether he was healthy or whether um, you know the band continued or whether the band split up. It, it was going to happen in the next year or so, anyway. And 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 that honor obviously was uh, was quite a remarkable day in Ottawa as well. Uh, but it's it's interesting to see the way that, that things started to evolve here. You know, you mentioned about the other projects, of course. Uh, the Secret Path, and, and uh, talk about actually a solo album. He was talking about actually doing some more concert dates. Uh, this, I, we get the sense, I guess we'll find details about this later on, get the sense that uh, this this came quickly, the end came very quickly, because he, he this guy was planning. He was not just simply going to fade away, was he? No. Um, when there's There's been a couple of people in my life, and I, and I think that as we get older, we, we find more and more people that have been touched by something like cancer or, or uh, you know, leukemia or, or a disease that we know that the end is going to come um, like it is for all of us, but maybe that they're being taken away much earlier than what we thought. Um, and, and there's probably only a handful of people in Gord's world um, that knew his day-to-day activities. Um, but I think when you have something like this that you're told, that there is going to be potentially an end date a lot quicker than, you know, riding out the rest of your life in, in normal health. Um, you do start to plan and you do start to have a little bit of motivation in you. Um, certainly you can go the other way and saying, well, that's it. I just, I'm, I'm going to give up and I'm going to, you know, just ride out the rest of my life in peace by the lake, which is what he, you know, he did in, in some aspects and, and in some times. Um, but he also had this determination in him that says, you know what, I've got work to do. And I may not have a lot of time left, but I'm going to use every single moment and choose my words carefully and choose my time very, very carefully to make the greatest impact. And because of, of his health status, it, it just puts that much more emphasis in terms of the media covering him, in terms of the fans listening, and in terms of the action that he was creating around him, knowing that we all wanted to do right by Gord. Because when Gord says something, um, if, if you're against Gord Downey, if you're on the other side of the fence, chances are you're probably on the wrong side of things. 
And when he asks for you to do something or when he wants to do something, you just make sure that you can do everything in your power to do it because he's that kind of a special guy. I think a great picture of the uh, of the dedication that he had toward the cause, especially with his work with indigenous peoples. Uh, and you've seen over the years, Eric, I mean, you know, Gord and the Hip, of course, have won numerous awards. Well, they're five-time winners, I think, of Entertainer of the Year at the Junos and, yeah. and countless other awards. But I don't think I've ever seen him as emotional as he was when uh, he was honored by the Assembly of First Nations just a couple of months ago for his work. Uh, that that was a, a, an incredible moment for him, and you could just see it in his face that this probably meant more to him than most of those other awards. I completely agree with you. Um, w- when you get to a certain stage of your life, and, and awards are great, and nominations are great, um, but after a while, they just start to pile up, and then you realize one day, you wake up and you say, you know, I- I'm not really doing this for that award, or I'm not doing this for this accolade or these great reviews i'm still creating music for me and my friends in the band and uh you know guys in the tragically hip that have been friends and and literally brothers for the last 30 35 years um but when gord started to receive um accolades and uh and, and the spotlight for what he did outside of the band absolutely met um, uh, more to him because he knew that he was really creating change that that a rock and roll band just can't do when they're on stage in front of 18,000 people. Eric, talk about the music for a second if we could. We've got a couple of minutes left here and, and there's so much to talk about about the life and career and, and the dedication of Gord Downey but uh, look at the broader picture here for a second and, and I think we have celebrated the the, the growth of Canadian music over the last number of years, and, and it's it's been a remarkable growth and a remarkable success story for so many different Canadian artists. Uh, but you, you and I have talked in the past about the fact that the hip had incredible success here in Canada, uh, varied success in other parts of the world, especially down in the States, uh, not to the extent that they probably deserved. Where do they where do they place in, in the lexicon of, of Canadian music and, and the history that's gone on? I tend not to say these things very lightly because sometimes words um, don't have the impact of, of, of to me or to you what they would have to other people. But I think that we can all agree that the Tragically Hip um, will forever be known as one of Canada's greatest bands. Uh, uh, not, in terms of commercial sales, they're right up there with millions of records sold in this country. Um, their videos are still being played on YouTube. Their music is still being streamed. Uh, at the end of the day, we still have the music to uh, to remember not only the Tragically Hip, but, but Gord's psyche. I. Um, and when you're a musician and you're first starting out, you can only dream of having more than five people care about you <laughs> when you're playing to two people, a bartender and somebody's dog. And uh, as you as you get successful, it's really um, it, 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 it really makes you have an effort to not take anything for granted, um, to make sure that um, that you're on point, to make sure that the album is is correct make sure that the concerts are are still vibrant and you never take a day off um that's a grind you know it's very easy to get a record deal it's very hard to keep one and it's very easy really when you get down to it to have a a, a hit record um you just follow a formula but the band never did that the band just wanted to do what they wanted to do and they completely did it on their own terms from the day that they started 
um, up until you know those last concerts and that last show in Kingston. They they just did it all correctly. Whether it was having their own festival up just north of uh, Toronto and Barrie every Canada Day, it, it was it was just so cool that they that they were ours and uh, um, and they they never took it they never took anything for granted. Like the rest of the guys in the band still play. They still hang out with local musicians. They still produce other musicians. They are just musicians, true and true, and they love what music has given to them, um, but they also appreciate what what we think the band means to them. And they, they were never arrogant about it. They were never mean about it. They, they always took the time to meet their fans or being stopped on the street. And they were members of the Tragically Hip every moment of every waking day in their lives. And that's a very tough and serious thing to be foisted upon them, but they did it with grace and dignity, that's for sure. Absolutely. Eric, thanks so much for the time today on Short Notice. I really appreciate you joining us. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Eric Alper, of course, music publicist and fan of the hip, like many of us are. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, the death of a Canadian icon, Gord Downey, age 53, passing away late last night with family and friends around him. Uh, we're going to spend some more time talking about that. Our next guest is uh, is familiar to you, of course. Ben McVie is the uh, morning show co-host on Y108, our brother station, just around the corner from us here down the hall and around the corner. He is also uh, the singer for a, uh, a band called uh, Simply Hip. Uh, he's a fan, uh, and, uh, well, to suggest that he's a fan, I think it would be a massive understatement. Thanks for coming in today on Show Notice. Uh, this is a pretty emotional day for you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, You know, it, it's, um, I mean, th- the last couple of years, there are a lot of iconic musicians that have gone, uh, David Bowie and Prince, and the list goes on. And when all of these things happen, I, I, I distinctly remember the feeling of sympathizing with people that they felt grief-stricken. But I wasn't a big enough fan of any of them. Uh, and their music didn't uh, speak to me as much as as the tragically hip did. And when, but last May, I think it was May, when it was announced that uh, uh, Gord had terminal cancer, it hit me right away. I thought, oh boy, uh, when that happens, I will be. Uh, there's, I feel a profound sense of grief. I really do. We in this business uh, have the opportunity from time to time to, to actually meet some of these icons. I mean, this is Hamilton. Uh, not everybody comes to Hamilton. They should, but they don't. Uh, and, and it does happen from time to time. And uh, there's a day that I will never forget, because uh, it was happening in your life, Yeah. Uh, when Gord Downey came in and actually sat in in the studio with you for uh, like an hour, hour and a half. He was, he was here for an hour. It was back in 2010 when he just did come out with that uh, sort of solo record yeah. with the Country of Miracles yeah. called The Grand Bounce. Anyway, he, he played at Gage Park that summer. That's right. And uh, when the album came out, he came in and did a one-hour interview. And I, again, like I've, I've, I've met some famous people. This is That's our job, right? I mean, we interview people and sure. so I've never felt so uh, uh, fanboy and gobsmacked. It, it caught me off guard uh, to, to when he walked in the room. I said, "Oh my God, that's that's Gord Downey," and he's sitting here talking to me for an hour. It was it was amazing. Well, you guys walked right past my office the, yeah. that morning before he he joined you in studio, and and I got to tell you, and because uh, I mentioned this to you after the fact, there was almost there's an aura about him, and it was just you and him walking down the hall. There yeah. was there was no entourage. No, there was just oh. Uh, you know, somebody would just walk by and said, who's that with Ben? I said, that's Gord Downey. Yeah, like, yeah, said, yeah. Not, yeah, it's Gord Downey yeah. in, in our studio. Yeah. Uh, and, and what, just a, such a cool guy. I've never interviewed anybody uh, who is so measured and so careful. Uh, it's something I really admire in people is uh, you, you ask them a question, especially when you're doing interviews or meeting for the first time, where they actually will take a moment 
to really formulate what they want to say. He, yeah. was, he was very articulate that way. Well, he didn't, he didn't give you pat answers. There's no, no nothing, cliches nothing there. just flew out of his mouth. There was nothing cliche or nothing made Hope up. Hope the fans love it and everything. No, no, none of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's Gord Downey, the, the social activist. We can talk about that, mm-hmm. uh, and we need to talk about that. Uh, there's Gord Downey, the musician. And uh, trying to even pinpoint him as a musician, Ben, has got to be difficult. He was a poet as much. He, he was, he, you know, if there's an American equivalent, it was Jim Morrison, who was a poet. Yeah. Uh, and, and they put his poetry to music. In that sense, yeah, yeah, his his, his lyrics his, mattered to his him. His lyrics really mattered to him. They were very profound and at times very uh, cryptic. I mean, there there were often times when he would just say, "The lyrics are what they mean to you," uh, and he was he was a brilliant wordsmith. Gord Downey, though, like in terms of the, the the Gord Downey and the tragically hip and and how Canadian they were. I mean, other people other people come up in the conversation in terms of Canada's greatest band or the most Canadian band ever. And outside, I think of maybe Stomp and Tom Connors. Uh, nobody else uh, was the poet laureate, sort of minstrel for the country that the tragically hip were. I mean, Rush and 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 Randy Bachman and all these other acts are. Fiercely and passionately Canadian, but their music didn't reflect it as much as as Gord Downie's did. Uh, Lightfoot did uh, Lightfoot for the did longest too. time. Yep. You know, he did the Canadian yep. Railroad trilogy. Uh, Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah, and I, I have a great respect for for people that that well, they're throwbacks. They're they're troubadours. Yeah, uh, because they write about society. They write about what's going on. Uh, you know, Lightfoot did that with Edmund Fitzgerald. Neil Young did it when he wrote Ohio. Yeah, Gord did it every album. Every album. Uh, that's the thing is, uh, you know, a lot of people will say that Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip were a part of the Canadian fabric. But I would go so far as to say for a great number of years, they wove the Canadian fabric. They really did. Well, and they held a mirror up to us. Yes. Which yeah, exactly. wasn't always comfortable. Exactly. And I remember asking about that when he was in, is, is you know, what, what shapes your lyrics? Is it your love of country or just the country itself? And he said, ultimately, it's it's a little bit more just the country itself and just writing about the Canadian experience. And it's uh, it's astounding to me how much I, I don't, I can't think of too many other bands where one country has singularly embraced them the way we did with the Tragically Hip and yet outside of our borders, limited pockets of success, what, what you would call success, commercial success and so on and so forth. But this is a band that could play to a, a bar room, a bar full of 300 people in San Antonio and then pack a stadium here. Yeah, they, they, the next night they're doing the ACC. Yeah, exactly. And sold out. Yep. That's the, that's the way these guys were. Yeah. What, what made them so successful? Was it the fact that they, they connected with, with Canadians? Well, yeah, I, I think over time that came to be the case. I mean, the, the, the more time went on, the more Canadian things seem to get in terms of of their writing style but uh, it's their live performances I can't I don't even I've lost count of how many times I saw them but Gord Downey was uh, in my mind and and I mean I I say this with hesitation because there have been so many great ones but I would say he's the greatest front man of a rock band that I've ever seen it's interesting Uh, I'll I'll draw the example of uh, the last show at Iverwind Stadium yeah uh, I'm sure we're coming up on the anniversary of that because I think it was uh, like uh, late October, or November. Yeah, it was. It was just yeah. around that time of year. And Sam Roberts opened and yeah, a great show and everything. And then uh, the hip and I, a couple of the people I was with at that show had not seen Gord Downey before. Yeah, and I said, "Well, you're in for something special." And basically, what he did through the well, he entertained us obviously. Yeah, but the he always had this sense of time and place. Yes, he wasn't just hey Hamilton, how are you? No, that, that, that's not him. He was never like that. But he knew what this was about. This was the last show this this 
storied stadium was yeah. ever going to see yeah. with this great history. And he talked about the history all the way through the show. He did, his, home, he did his homework. And he, and he just wove it into into yeah. the, the, the dialogue and the monologue that he had with the audience, that, that bond that he was creating with them right now. The mighty west wind and all this sort of yeah, stuff. I mean, yeah. he, he had this great sense of, of where he was and what... what what was what was so important about where he was at that particular time? Yeah, there are a lot and, of. And maybe we took it for granted because not, but we shouldn't because not too many other people have that talent. Yeah, well, and and I mean, you know, in in some people's defense, not many people have the uh, opportunity to get into the country and see as much of it yeah. as Gord Downey did as a touring musician. But if you look back on his body of work, what was really remarkable about this sort of Canadianism that he embodies was the fact that his music was very regional. So, you know, with Wheat Kings, you had David Milgard. So it played a lot more out on the Paris of the Prairies than it did here. You take a song like 38 Years Old, which is about Millhaven maximum security, and that rings well. Or a song like Bob Cajun, where he says that night in Toronto. And that is an historic reference to an incident that happened in Toronto. And mentions of Algonquin Park. And depending on where they went, you could tell that they had really sought to experience all of the country and not just one part. But when you write a song like Wheat Kings, yeah, uh, and you explain to your your record label that uh, yeah, this is about uh, David Milgard being mm-hmm. wrongly charged uh, and 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 toughing it out, and his mother fighting for him for years and mm-hmm. years and years. It's an incredible story of social injustice, of course, and it's it's one of the dark and black marks in in Canadian history, of course, mm-hmm. uh, because of the way that carried on. Uh, I'm sure the record company says, yeah, uh, well, good luck with that. That's not going to be commercially yeah. successful, but it's one of their most popular songs. And as time went on, I, I mean, that's what I mean. The, the, the Canadian references seem to increase as time went on, but I think that's because maybe uh, not only did they realize that they were telling an important story, but yet the, their, their handlers, their label, and so on and so forth went, well, if you can do it, and you can do it well, and it succeeds, then go ahead and do it, which is exactly what they did. But he seemed. There are some people that that are are so enveloped in their artistry, and that's that's good. I mean, that's that's, that's wonderful to have that sort of dedication. But they're almost oblivious to the fans and simply say, "I'm going to write this, whether yeah. it's poetry, whether it's a song, and if you like it, great. If you don't, I really don't give a damn." Gord Downey uh, was uh, this incredible. He, yeah, but he he was he married those two ideas. He was a big tent guy. Yeah, do you know? And and uh, I remember because I went to see uh, two shows on that farewell tour last year. I saw the one here in Hamilton. And then my wife and I went to Kingston to see the final show. And I remember during that tour him saying at some point that he was just trying to make eye contact with everybody in the building, as, as many as he could, to just say thank you for what has been an incredible ride. And he did that every show. He just had this incredible ability that he could take a, a room with 20,000 people in it and you felt as though he was singing directly to you. There was just something about the connection he had with his audience and his fans. It was it was remarkable. You saw him perform with the hip a number of different times. Mm-hmm. I, I got a pet peeve about going to live concerts. I think I've talked to you about this in the past. Uh, I hate it when, when artists start to freelance and say, you know what, I've been singing this song for 25 years. I'm going to do it differently tonight because I'm bored with it. Yeah. And, and and I'm thinking, I paid a lot of money to go and hear you sing it. They never did that. They were true to their fans and true to their music. True to always. their fans, and they always had an interesting twist because Gord was famous for those you know killer whale tank-esque yeah. sort of rants during songs. Yeah. Where, and it was amazing to me because he'd do those things, and the band behind him is just so tight and always seemed to know where he was going, despite the fact that a lot of that was improvised. They were just the band itself. It's a remarkable study in in five men who are bonded as truly great artists and truly great friends, and they they really did love each other. It, it was um, it was a neat story. It was just so 
interesting to watch and, and listen for for all those years. But that's that's a, a, a part of the the story of the tragically hip that yeah. doesn't get told very often. Uh, this is a, this is a, a bunch of five guys who grew up in the Kingston area yeah. and and just never separated. I mean, they just yeah. became best buddies. Yeah. And even when he the, the band never broke up. I mean, he did some solo work and they didn't do stuff for a while. Sure. But they were just taking a rest. That's all. Yeah. And he had these creative juices flowing and said, "Well, I got to do something." And yeah. you know, I'll, I'll call you guys if you want to do something. Like, you know, but and, and it was never like, "Oh, Gord's going out on his own now." Yeah. There was this this incredible mutual respect with these guys. Well, they did a lot of shows too. Like Paul Langwa, the rhythm player. It, it's a little known fact, but I mean, he plays a lot of coffee houses in Kingston and was in, right up until that tour last year, and still is. He's got some solo material too. Sure, they go their separate ways, but yeah, they always managed to come back together and make a great record. Where do you, this is I, this is very emotional, obviously, because yeah. th- I, I know how tough this is, uh, and the, this was the inspiration, obviously, for you to get back into music and, and the band. I mean, that's why you look so damn tired every time I see you in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Some of those it's, gigs it's, are late. It's rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Yeah, yeah you're, uh, musicians don't even know there's an AM on the clock, but you have to because the, your your real job here, of course, is is hosting the the Y One Eight Morning Show with Shauna. So. When you look at this music, and, and, and of course you play this stuff, and you love this stuff right yeah. now, too. I'll ask you the same question I asked Eric Alper a couple of minutes ago, too. Where do you place the hip in, 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 the, in the lexicon of Canadian music? And Because it's, it's grown exponentially, and, and it's, it's now gaining international uh, recognition. And I know that I'm old enough to remember when the Canadian Radio Television Commission uh, deemed that every radio station had to play 30% Canadian music, and everybody thought, oh, there's the death of radio. we would have to play all that Canadian stuff. Uh, now <laughs> you can't get enough of it. I mean, yeah. the, the, because the talent is so good. Yeah. Uh, the hip is part of that, but uh, where where do you place them? Where where are they? Well, you know, it's a very objective thing when people start comparing bands. So some people are going to like Rush better, or the Guess Who better, or Brian Adams, or Celine Dion, or whoever, Justin Bieber, for that matter. That that's not what this is about. I, I think, subjectively speaking, in terms of importance and contribution to Canadian music, I would put the Tragically Hip at the very top. At the very, very top. What did, what was it about? Gord Downey and Hamilton, and I, I, I don't want to say that we can claim him as one of ours because mm-hmm. he was very loyal to Kingston and probably very loyal to every other town that they played in. But mm-hmm. the, he, he had something about Hamilton. There's something about this town that he liked, and I'll reference the uh, the interview he did with uh, George Strombolopoulos years ago, and George was still doing the the show, the one with the two red seats. Yeah. I, fig- I forget he's gone through so many different names, but anyway, really good interviews, and and he had Gord on. And they were kind of doing rapid fire, you know, Q and A stuff. And yeah, I remember and, and George said, "Best place for live music in the country." And, and uh, George said, and Gord said, "Hamilton." Yeah, like almost without reservation. Yeah, I, I, except to your point, there was that two or three second delay always because he always he didn't just blurt answers out. That's he always right. gave, and he said Hamilton, and it, it kind of shocked George, I guess, and yeah. maybe shocked an awful lot of other people, but. There, there's something about this city. The hip played here a lot over the years. Yeah, well, I mean, you think about the talent that's come out of this city, too. I think we're just a great audience. I think I think um, the art scene here, I think we're just big lovers of music. And we, when we love something, we really, really love it and hold it dear. And I, I think Hamilton audiences always, I mean, audiences everywhere uh, did that for the Tragically Hip. But there is something about a Hamilton audience that if they're, if they're into what you're doing, they're really into what you're doing. We talk about the fans and the adulation, and you're seeing that outpouring right now on social media, uh, television networks, uh, radio stations like this that are talking about Gord and talking about the hip. I, I think that, that love for the hip and for their music and for what they've done for Canadian music and for Canada, for that matter, yeah. is, is evident. 
But I, I get the sense as well, and I want to get your perspective on this as a musician too, not just as a fan, that they were a musician's band, that, mm-hmm. that maybe they didn't make it as big in the States as some others did and, and maybe should have. But there was a, a love and respect among the music community for this. And I remember the night, I guess it was the night of the, the concert, wasn't it? The, con- the, the Kingston concert? Yeah. Where Eddie Vedder actually stopped their concert and, and paid Chicago. tribute. Yeah, and paid yeah, tribute, and to, tribute to Gord. Yeah. Um, it, it, I guess as a musician's band, well, yeah. that They, they uh, I think, amongst other musicians, uh, they were very supportive of developing talent. Uh, they'd bring a, along bands that nobody had ever heard of to open with them on, ca- on cross-country tours just because they believed that they were really good. Uh, and I think because the band is, uh, the, the five of them, there's very little pretension there. There's no ego there. And I think other musicians see that as something to embrace and to uh, admire and to strive for. And then, uh, like I said, I think, I think um, in terms of musicians, musicians, like I, I can speak for... Uh, my band, when we rehearse some of the songs that they play, you don't realize there are a lot. There's a lot of intricacy to some of them, where musicians go, "Wow, that's I can't believe the way you wrote that." You know, some of the some of the drum timing and and some of the chords that are involved in some of the leads and and everything else are just the way they pluck the bass. It's, it's um, they really did. They they struck. They had a unique sound, especially their acoustic songs. Some of the best acoustic sound recorded ever. What happens to the band now? Uh, you know, when Jim Morrison passed away so suddenly back in those days, mm-hmm. uh, the, Ray and the band tried to, they put a solo album out, cut other voices. They, they tried to, to keep the doors together in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. Didn't go so well. No. Uh, do these guys leave well enough alone? I think so. I do. Uh, I know, like, Paul Langwell, like I was saying, the rhythm player, he actually... Yeah, they're also still going to play he, music. He sounds kind of like Gord, too. I mean, they could pull it off, but I don't see, just because of the chemistry uh, between those five guys, I don't see them ever coming back with another lead singer or trying to, trying to make it work, I think I think they're just going to leave it. I mean, I'm not going to try to equate these guys to the Beatles, but I know that after the breakup of the Beatles, there was always, oh, they're going to get together yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Or, or Julian's going to play instead of John because John doesn't want to do this. And, 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 and McCartney always said, it's got to be those four guys. Yeah. We were the Beatles. There, there will never be another Beatles. There will never be another hip. I mean, Gord Downey was not the only element of the hip, but no. he, was, he was part of that. That's... That you you can't amputate something and simply say okay it's whole now and uh, well I'll say this especially not Gord Downey I mean he, he was the 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 heartbeat of the band no question thanks for spending some time with us today thanks for thanks for having me Ben McVie of course uh, host of the uh, Y One Hundred Eight Morning Show and a huge uh, hip fan of course and uh, his uh, tribute band of course simply hip playing in uh, towns around here over the uh, next few months you can check that out and hear some of the music the music will live on and so well the memories of uh, an incredible Canadian snuffed out way too early. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Prime Minister is in Ottawa with caucus. I'm not so sure if the finance minister is there. Uh, finance Minister Bill Morneau is uh, not having a great week. Uh, went with allegations over a French chateau about family trusts and uh, still getting an awful lot of heat uh, about his uh, fair tax plan that he rolled out some time ago. And the pushback is, uh, if anything, getting bigger. Tim Harper, freelance writer and editor, writes about that. Uh, it's published in the Toronto Star today, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. Tim, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm okay, Bill, but I want to echo your comment about a, a punch to the gut about Gord Downey's death. But um, anyways, uh, we'll move on. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's uh, just kind of leaves you a little hollow, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a good word for it. Even you know, you, you always knew this day was coming, but when you, when you first see it, it's, it's, it, there's nothing cushions uh, cushions the blow. Not at all. 
Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the piece that uh, that's published in the Star today. Uh, to, to suggest that Morneau's not having a good week, I think, would be a massive understatement, uh, piling on. But I mean, as as you indicate in the piece today, uh, this this is this is him doing it to himself, really. I mean, he's really got nobody to blame here, does he? Well, let's take a step back here, Bill. It's 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 worth noting, and I find it somewhat inconceivable that the finance minister in a majority government. Uh, undertakes to uh, um, fulfill a, a campaign promise uh, on tax fairness. He does it in the, in the, in the depths of summer uh, without apparently talking to anybody uh, in July, and now we're uh, in the latter part of October, and it's become a, a career-threatening uh, crisis for him, in my view, because this thing has been handled so poorly from the get-go that all the focus is now on his uh, alleged conflict of interest, uh, how much money he has? Does he have access to the um, to the uh, shares uh, uh, of Morneau Chappelle, the giant company that uh, the family-owned company that he apparently uh, has more than forty million dollars worth of stock in? Um, to go from that starting point to where we are now is just a, a series of self-inflicted wounds. He's been shooting himself in the foot uh, since uh, the middle of July. This is a, this is a poison pill for any elected official, isn't it, Tim? I mean, to to actually wear your wealth on your sleeve like this. I mean, there there are always going to be opposition members that are going to try to paint you in that fashion. But boy, uh, you're you're handing them the brush and the palette here. Well, we always like to point out that uh, you know uh, those who seek public office um, are doing so. Uh, there, there's a, an altruistic uh, bent to it because they could be making more money in the private sector. Uh, but you don't also want to look uh, elitist and out of touch. So you've got a prime minister talking about his family fortune being placed in a blind trust. Um, and, you know, that was an honest uh, appraisal of what Justin Trudeau is worth, but it gets, it, the words family fortune are not exactly uh, what you want to be bandying about when you're the champion of the middle class. Uh, Bill Morneau, uh, you know, everyone knew he was wealthy coming in, but now, you know, you're sitting here as a voter and you're thinking that this guy's getting like $160,000 a month in shares, uh, dividends potentially. Um, it, it's, again, you, you appear elitist. It plays to that whole thing of, you know, Trudeau taking vacations on private islands and, the, you know, the cash for access uh, earlier in, in the mandate. And it just plays to this whole uh, concept that the Liberals sought to avoid, that they are uh, elitist, rich, out of touch. They don't, you know... They don't know anything about the problems faced by Canadian farmers or anybody in the fishing industry. They're out of touch with small business, all the problems they had uh, rolling out these tax reforms when they, they implied that uh, these people were tax cheats. But meanwhile, Morneau and Trudeau are sheltering their own assets while they're, uh, while they're, they're penalizing people with far, far less money than they have. And, and I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't... I, I think we don't want to say, "Hey, listen, you're rich; you shouldn't run for public office." No, but but it is it is something that's going to make you vulnerable in some way, shape, or form. So if you are in that circumstance, like Trudeau and Morneau, and and frankly, let's face it, there are others that are in that circumstance too. You better make darn sure that you relate to Main Street, Ontario, and Main Street, Saskatchewan, uh, and don't appear as if you're uh, you know dictating from high above the you know the the ivory towers up on Parliament Hill. Well, how many times have we heard um, Trudeau and Morneau talk about the the middle class and those working hard to get there. Um, so there's a there's a, a bit of a disconnect here. Um, but you know the more serious pr- 
problem that uh, Bill Morneau faces right now is uh, an alleged conflict of interest. He's, he hasn't done anything illegal, but uh, he did not put his holdings in a blind trust. He was acting on the ethics commissioner's advice that you don't have to do that uh, because his uh, assets are being held by a holding company. I don't want to get too far down in the weeds here. I do think his political instincts should have been right from the get-go. I know I don't have to, but I'm going to put them in the blind trust. I, I can't remember a finance minister in my, in my experience who did not put their assets in a blind trust. So, you know, you've got him introducing a, a bill, for example, that the NDP highlighted quite properly yesterday that deals with uh, uh, pension reform in this country. Uh, Morneau Chappelle uh, administers and, and uh uh, a large part of its business is setting up and administering uh, private pensions. This would benefit Morneau Chappelle if he still has access to those shares. So, you know, he's got to deal with uh, whether he has sold the shares, whether he is going to put everything in a blind trust, uh, because the conflict of interest allegations hanging out there have some some legitimacy to them. Tim, as you point out in the piece today in the Star, uh, Morneau is, by definition, he's not a politician. Uh, He's not a very good communicator. Uh, He doesn't have the the gift of the gab like a a Jim Flaherty or some of these other people that can just naturally speak off the cuff like that. So there's a a couple of strikes against him in this. So so he might be able to plead naivety in this situation, but you'd think that somebody would say, look, if you're stepping up to that big job, you better do this. Uh, Even if, I don't care what the commissioner is, said, you should do this anyway. In other words, you better cover your, your you-know-what. And apparently that conversation never took place. Well, naivety is a stretch. I don't, think he can, uh, I, I don't think he can claim that. And you're right. Uh, if he was unfamiliar with the process, somebody from the Prime Minister's office, and there were experienced hands around, should have said, look, Bill, just put it in a blind trust because this could be problematic coming up. Um, it, it, it just would seem to be... Uh, political instinct 101, right? Um, I'll give you an. I'll years. give you an example. I knew somebody years ago that was running uh, for office here in the Hamilton area for for a federal seat, as it turned out. And uh, they were a person that had done pretty well in, in the private sector in their life. And uh, they showed up at the campaign office one day in uh, in their BMW uh, and got out of the car. And there were you know a little gaggle of, of you know, volunteers, etc. And the campaign manager went over to the to the alleged candidate and said, don't ever drive that car here again. Don't you, I don't care, put it in the garage, show up on a bus, but do not do that because you're making it them and us when you do that. And and, so, and he said, these are your people and you're, you're alienating yourself from your own supporters when you do that. Yep. Uh, and that was at this level. I mean, at that level, of, at, you know, in the, in the federal cabinet, I mean, come on, they really dropped the ball here. Oh, uh, they have. Um, it started with a lack of consultation. Uh, this is a government that's always that actually faces accusations of, of consulting, talking too much, and then not doing anything. In this case, uh, Morneau did quite the opposite. Uh, he just laid out these changes. He didn't even talk to the caucus, so that was the first problem. You had a sort of an incipient caucus revolt. They underestimated uh, who they were dealing with here. I I had a conversation with. Um, uh, a friend from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce just before the House of Commons came back, and over a beer, uh, we were talking about this. We both kind of agreed it was a tempest in a teapot, and it would be all over in four days. This is a guy from the Chamber. Um, so uh, everyone kind of underestimated um, the, the pushback. Um, you know, uh, they were referred to as uh, the, these uh, small businesses. They were well-heeled people. 
Well, if they were well-heeled people, they'd want to kick back, and uh, that's what happened. They underestimated the, the pushback. They underestimated um, the concerns in caucus, um, and they, they, the messaging was all wrong. They implied that these hardworking people were tax cheats, and they didn't like to hear that. Um, and then they allowed this thing to um, fester through the commons and allowed the opposition, predominantly Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives, to then turn it around on the wealth of the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister. So uh, the whole thing has been, the rollout has just been a sort of a textbook example of how not to do something. But this is a government uh, that has not just been in office for the last six weeks. I mean, you know, they're halfway through this first mandate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin Trudeau is not a, a, a political neophyte. I mean, he was, he was in opposition for some time. He's been around Parliament. He knows that. I mean, for God's sakes, he watched his father uh, run the country for a number of years, too. Uh, th- th- you got to look at this and say they should have known better. There's no two ways about it. Well, they should have, but, you know, I'll uh, cite my colleague uh, Susan Delacourt today wrote a column in I Politics, who, who I think quite rightly points yeah. out, still, there are inexperienced um, chiefs of staff, political advisors, and ministers, and when you look at the ministers who've got themselves in, in trouble, um, Miriam Monsef on uh, electoral reform and uh, Bardis Chagger and uh, Melanie Jolie uh, on the Netflix in Quebec, and now Morneau, they are rookie ministers, and you know it's the you don't see Ralph Goodale in, in trouble anywhere. I mean, the seasoned hands uh, know how to handle themselves and, and their way around. So I, I still think that uh, you put a lot of uh, untested people, uh, I don't care how successful they were in the private sector, into cabinet posts. Uh, eventually, some of this stuff comes home to roost because Bill Morneau is quite clearly an accomplished uh, business person. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't translate into becoming a good politician. And he has had problems right from the get-go in terms of, um, as you point out, communicating. He's not very good in the, the House of Commons. They're, they're keeping him out of there this week. He's in New Brunswick this morning. Uh, and that's rankling some liberals as well uh, who think, you know, he should stand up and answer these questions uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, you, uh, you saw, I don't know what you thought of it, I was stunned to see uh, Trudeau essentially turned him into a potted plant at the uh, the event in Stouffville this week, and 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 rather patronizingly tell reporters who wanted to talk to him, well, you, you know, I'm the prime minister, you get to talk to me, uh, and he only reluctantly let Morneau get up and answer one question at the end of it. So, um, I mean. To say that was awkward is well. Is it, it was emasculating. Let's talk about. It. I mean, this is the finance minister, and this is supposedly his policy. And now, all of a sudden, his boss steps up and says, "I'll answer all these questions. Uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain here." Yeah, I'm not sure I've seen anything like that. Uh, what I, I thought that failed on all fronts. I thought it made Trudeau look rather uh, arrogant, rather condescending to the reporters. Uh, you know, this, he's a self-styled uh, admirer of the uh, the Fifth Estate. Um, and it, it just made Morneau look silly. Uh, the questions were going to the finance minister, and to have the prime minister say, uh, I'll handle them, uh, uh, you get to talk to the prime minister. Um, as if, uh, I, I just thought it, it, I thought it played very, very poorly, and, and it, uh, it just served uh, to reinforce a, a view that they didn't trust um, uh, Bill Morneau to properly uh, lay out his case in front of a microphone. Uh, he's going to have to do it. He's going to have to get up and question period at some point and uh, at least repeat talking points. Uh, you know, when Harjit Sajjan got in trouble about allegedly embellishing his uh, his uh, CV, his role uh, 
many months ago, they just got him to stand up there and just kept repeating the same talking points. It, it, it looks silly, but, I mean, that's the only way that these kind of things go away. But eventually, do you get the sense, though, that, Tim, that they're going to have to walk back this, this tax policy? It just It's not going away. The, 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 the protest, is it's, it's growing more than anything else, and it's probably what's making it grow now. It's fanning the flames, of course, of these accusations prop with some credibility now that these guys are out of touch. Yeah, and I don't know why they decided to roll this thing out all week long, right? It's it's not working. If you if you want to climb down, and they had to climb down, I would have done the complete and full climb down on Monday, laid everything out, announced my new um, tax breaks uh, that uh, you know you, you completely done a 360 on because you you weren't going to do that. Now you're forced to do it. You're walking back. Lay it all out in one day instead of letting this thing fester with you know there's going to be another announcement today and another one tomorrow. Uh, it's not working. It's again. It's a dubious communication strategy, and uh, it's just it's leaving Bill Morneau just hanging out in uh, in the wind. We will have an interesting question period this afternoon because Trudeau will be there, and traditionally, uh, recently, and on Wednesdays, he takes all the questions. Um, but there's still going to be uh, there's still going to have to be a, a moment of reckoning for Bill Morneau to get up and answer the questions. Um, and you know, it's probably not enough at this point strictly for him to say. I'm going back to the ethics commissioner, and if she says that everything should go to blind trust, I'm glad to do that. Uh, there's just too many other questions about why that wasn't done initially, uh, what his holdings are, what access he has to them, uh, and he's going to have to come clean, or this thing does not go away. But bringing Mary Dawson in this right now is too little too late, isn't it? Well, it, she has a, a habit of uh, muddying the waters instead of clarifying things. <laughs> she, she has actually provided um, a bit of a lifeline for the government because she has said, as you're aware, that uh, whether you called a loophole or not, technically what Bill Morneau did with the the holding company is allowed under uh, conflict of uh, interest legislation. Mary Dawson says she flagged it before it should be changed, uh, and Parliament did nothing about it. This gives the Liberals a, a slim read out there to say, well, you know, the, the, the finance minister didn't do anything wrong. He was playing by the rules. Perhaps we should change the rules. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we start to see the liberal defense go in that direction. So, uh, you know, Mary Dawson, I think, has probably helped them a little bit. To that extent, as far as, as ethics are concerned, but there's the court of public opinion, and I'm not so yeah. sure it's going to wash there either. It's, it's a great piece. Check it out, of course, at the Toronto Star website. Tim, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Great talk to you, Bill. Thanks for calling. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.